yeah, every long run I did at mile 12, like it became a struggle. And, you know, I finished my long runs and all of that. But like, I was well aware that like, man, this is kind of where I am right now. I need to get stronger. And the only way this is going to happen is if I'm, is if I'm running longer and putting more miles in. And it's not simply in the long run. Like I need to do more of this and not just more meaning more per week, but also many more weeks of this. If you're an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated and remove hurdles so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you're in the right place. Runner Click presents The Passionate Runner with your host, me, Whitney Hines. Hi, and welcome to episode 10 of Runner Clicks, the Passionate Runner podcast. I'm your host, Whitney Hines. I'm a lifelong runner, certified running coach, and founder of the MotherRunners.com, a resource for moms who run. And I am so excited for today's interview. Today's interview is with the host of the popular running podcast, The Rambling Runner, Matt Chittum. And Matt talks about how he was able to remove a self-imposed ceiling on his training, overcome barriers to becoming a more consistent and ambitious runner, and shares why he decided to start the Rambling Running Podcast. If you didn't know, the Rambling Running Podcast has become one of the top running podcasts in the U.S. over the past three years. And in addition to hosting that, Matt is also a running coach for McCurdy Trained. I'm so excited for you to hear my conversation with him. It's coming on right now after the short message from our sponsor, Runner Click. If you are an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated, and remove hurdles, so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you are in the right place. Runner Click presents The Passionate Runner with your host, Whitney Hines. Matt, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm so excited that you took the time to speak with me because you are the host of one of my all-time favorite running, uh, running podcasts. So thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. You've been on the Rambling Runner podcast. So of course I was going to return the favor. Think that's true. And I have such a hard time listening to myself. So I just, I cringe, but I love that. I love the format of your show that rambling is encouraged because I do feel like I'm pretty good at rambling. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. That's why you have a mic now. If anyone's ever been on a podcast, that may be the case, but the feeling, the sensation of listening to yourself isn't formed because if you've ever recorded a voicemail message or intro, like, you know, (laughs) sorry, I'm away right now, you know, leave your message at the beep or whatever. If you've ever done that experience, you know how it feels to listen to yourself for even 30 seconds and you'll you'll try it 47 times to make it sound right. It still won't sound right. And then you'll just give up just because you need to move on with your life. Now just imagine an hour of that. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, I was a TV newscaster, so I like you think I would be immune to that, but I don't know if it's because I I've been out of the business for so long or I just maybe that that was one of the reasons why I got out of the business was that it was just so cringe-worthy and you're so everybody is so like more critical of themselves. So, yeah, and now I'm now I'm back in it. So, but I did get very positive feedback from the interview I did with you. I had a lot of people message me and say that they really enjoyed it. So thank you for giving me 
that platform to talk about my story. And it was at the time that like the good four weeks that I've had in the past two years where I was like, oh, yeah, running's great. And then I think the next week I tore my plantar fascia. So <laughs> The rambling runner curse strikes again, <laughs> evidently. Oh, no. Is that a curse? Has that happened? I don't know. It, maybe it is now. It wasn't before. I seem to. Usually it's sort of like a springboard effect, not because <laughs> the show does anything, but it's kind of like, oh, wow, this person's doing some really cool stuff. Let's have them on the show. And they're they ended up having a really good performance because they were doing a lot of cool stuff, you know? So I just kind of, usually I record with them while they're in the midst of doing something awesome. So the fact that it continues to be awesome is usually not that big of a deal. However, with you, it does seem you, be, you do seem to be a little snake bit after that conversation. <laughs> no, I mean, I, yeah, it's all been a wonderful learning process that I'm sure we will get into because I know that you've dealt with injuries too. And I, and case in point, I, you've had several conversations with Kiara D'Amato and I mean, look at her now. So crushing it. She is crushing it. She's a, you know, she's a poster child for a lot of different things, right? She can have a lot of, a lot of poster campaigns, you know, cause you have the people who gravitate towards her cause they're like, look at her, like mid comes back in her mid thirties and who would have thought that she'd be setting records right after that kind of thing. But then she's a poster child for a whole, for a completely different genre of people, right? The people who ran well in high school, ran well in college. She was at the top of her game in college. She was as good as anybody else, right? She was as good as Molly Huddle. She was as good as any of these folks in college goes and runs pro after college, runs these high level events, gets injured, Things just don't seem to click and she just moves on. And there's how many times have you heard it? These college runners who do very, very well, but ultimately don't have a life in running, right? They have their high school experience at a high level. They have their college experience at a high level, but ultimately running doesn't become a lifelong pursuit for them. It was more of a season of their life kind of pursuit. So I think while she also, she is like, you know, the poster child for people like me who are like, wow, what can I do? You know, as I become a master's runner, look what Kira D'Amato did. She also gravitates for the exact end of the spectrum with people who are like, yeah, I ran Foot Locker and I was a college All-American, but I haven't run in six years. Is my running life over? It's like, well, no, look at her. Look what she's doing, you know? And it is, you don't get many people whose personality and life story can appeal to such disparate groups. Yeah. And I think part of what makes her so appealing too is that she, it's like, Almost, even though she's a Nike pro runner, like she, it's almost like it's a hobby for her. I mean, her Strava is just like, I mean, her titles are all jokes and she's just out there clearly enjoying herself and having fun and not taking it too seriously. And I think that's really important too. And I think she had a conversation with you, not maybe like a year ago where she was having a really good build. And then I think she injured her hamstring and had to take time off. And then, and now, I mean, look at her. So that- That was Road of the Trials. Oh, was it? Okay. That was an Olympic, that was Olympic prep is what that was. And it was one of those classic things where it's like, you think the injury is not that big of a deal. And then it kind of lingers and you still don't think it's that big of a deal. Then it kind of lingers and then it lingers and then it lingers and it lingers. And then all of a sudden you've lost a whole season. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened to her. It's not a new running experience. That's so many people have experienced that sort of thing. It just happened to happen in the build up to the Olympics. So that's why she wasn't a part of it. I'm not granted 10 K is really hard and the five K is really hard. And those, those events on the women's side and the men's side were loaded. So there's no reason to assume that if she was healthy, that she was automatically going to make the team. That is, that would be an unfair assumption for the other people in the event, but you know, she definitely would have been in the mix. 
you know, and obviously with Shelby Houlihan with the week leading into the 5K and her, you know, not being able to run, um, that obviously would have opened up a potential slot. I think we all were in agreement that if if she was happy, she was healthy and running and you strip away some of the other circumstances that she was probably was going to be the person to beat in that event. All of a sudden she's not in it. That would have been interesting. But, you know, I mean, what we saw from her early that spring when she was at the Texas qualifier, the trials of miles put together, it was a super hot race, really humid down in Texas in the early spring. And she finished second in that race and really, really ran well. And it was funny. The person who won a European runner, actually, she lapped everybody in the field. <laughs> she lapped every single person. And uh, which is a wild scenario, but nevertheless, uh, you know, I think that was like the last event that she ran healthy and there were some really good runners in that event and she was easily second place. I mean, she was second place by a mile, basically by the same distance that the person who won wow, came in first place. So I think that kind of set the stage for what she could have done potentially in the 10K at the trials, but obviously it was for naught, but who knows? Blessings, you know, this is the kind of thing that we see all the time, right? Is that you can't take these events and silo them out because if that happens and say she goes to the Olympics and then there's recovery from the Olympics and maybe what we saw happen this winter maybe doesn't happen. Right. If all of those other events occur, not because she couldn't have done it, but just because her calendar might've shifted around. You might not have gone for the same events that she ended up doing. So who's to say, right? It's like, it's like you hear these crazy stories, right? It's like, all right, the farmer's kid breaks his arm, you know, working with the cows all of a sudden, Oh man, this stinks because you know, that he can't help out around the farm anymore. Like, you know, this is a disaster. But then, like, a war breaks out and he can't get drafted because his arm's broke. Right. So, it, right. Hey, all of a sudden, it's a blessing. You know, it's just like this whole cycle of random things that can happen. We all, yeah. My physical therapist a few weeks ago when I was, like, lamenting my injury cycle, and he was like, Whitney, you never know. Like, being injured and keeping you from running for so long could have saved you from getting hit by a bus. I was like, that's true. You know, you just never know the blessings and silver linings between things that are seemingly bad or don't go according to plan. Okay, so we've been talking for a few minutes now, and it is clear that running is your passion and that you are like you are into the sport. It's not just about your journey, but it's about like watching the elites. And obviously you have a running podcast that focuses on the amateur runner. So what what was the genesis of this? How, have you always been a runner? When did you start? I've never, shoot, even recently, up to like very recently, I've never been like a consistent runner. Okay. Runner's been, running's been part of my life for since I was in middle school, but it has never been until, you know, very recently in the last few years where it's been a primary endeavor within my life. So I was always a really active kid for sure. So, you know, I would run, like do like the physical fitness tests and, you know, high school, you know, in middle school and elementary school and all of that and trying to be like the fastest kid in the mile at your school and stuff like that. So I think still think the best race to this day was eighth grade, eighth grade mile. Like I knew <laughs> I wanted to break six minutes. I was dead set on it and I did. I was so excited. I ran like 555 and had like the best time in my school or whatever. You know, I didn't break the, the school record or missed it by a minute. Toby Ayers, I think I had like 454, two years ahead of me. But yeah, so I was like, you know, anyway, so I was, I've always been doing that. My dad gave up cigarettes when I was in sixth grade. He was like a two pack, a two pack a day smoker, but it was a really good athlete growing up. And he basically, you know, once he gave that up, he picked up running. So that'd be kind of like 
basically traded his addictions, so to speak. (laughs) Um, Not to make light of addiction. Lots of people do that, though. But yeah. Not to make light of addiction. But basically, it's what he did was, I'm giving up this, but I'm going to pick up this other thing. So an effort to also be healthy. So he's running a lot, you know, 30, 40 miles a week from zero. He was at zero before. So he was going a lot of 5Ks, and I would join him, and I would do the kids race, and then I would, you know, kind of transition into into the, the real race. And that was fun in high school. Did cross country my junior year, but my main my main focus in high school was basketball. So that was my main thing. I ended up playing basketball in college, and I coached college basketball for six years after college. So that was the main thing for me. I did run track my junior and senior year, and that went well. We made made the states in like the four by four hundred, and I did enjoy that. I probably missed more practices than I went to. I was playing basketball or street hockey, and I would go to the meets and some of the practices. Uh, it was a pretty low-key affair uh, at our school, but we were pretty good. So, you know, in the 400, I'd run typically in the 56 to 58 range for that. But I did every, you know, it was a small school. So I did every event. I did the one, I did the two, I did the four, I did the four by four, I did the, the long jump, the triple jump, and the high jump. So that was uh, usually what I would do at a track meet, but so did everybody else. So it's not like I was doing anything out of this world. And then... With basketball, running was a major part of my life because you had to stay in shape. I'm not a tall guy. I'm 5'8". So, you know, being a college basketball player at that size kind of necessitates that you maximize all of your other abilities because height is not going to be in your favor. You know, I'm the only guy in the team that had a five in his height, you know, in college. Oh, yeah. And there are not many people on the other team that had a five in their height either, you know, unless they were 6'5". So... With that, you, know, you had to stay in shape. So I was lifting a ton. I was running a ton and, you know, physical fitness tests. And, you know, you want to be the quickest guy in the sprints and your practices and stuff like that. So it was always around. So I was doing a ton of, you know, track workouts in, in the summer and things like that. And I remember there was like, basically we had like a one, we had one track out, one track, we had one track workout we were supposed to do in the summer and basically do it a lot. So it was six by six by six. So it was like, six by 200, six by 100, six by 60. So basically you do it and you jog back, you do it and you jog back. So it wasn't that intense, but it was also, you know, hundred degrees. So it was um, usually pretty hot. So, but you know, keep us in shape. And then after college, once basketball fell away, you know, I kind of got into running again as a more of a, you know, what am I going to do as an athlete kind of thing? Now that basketball is gone, I was coaching basketball, which meant that I couldn't really play in any men's leagues because we had our own games. So picked up running from there. Yeah, you know, I was a single guy. So I had um, I had a little bit more. I, mean, I, was, I was basically working two full-time jobs, but I did have some free time or some, some choices in my life, especially outside of the basketball season. So I joined a Ronald McDonald house running team here in Providence. I know they're around the country. They're great. And the one around here was fantastic. And it was run by a number of people, but the two people spearheading it were Bob and Ann Rothenberg who were the longtime track coaches and cross country coaches at Brown university. And when it was, it was ridiculous. It was like for 50 bucks a year, they would write you weekly plans. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and they wouldn't even keep the money. They would just give it to Ron McDonald house. It was just like a way of like, you know, keeping you invested, I guess. And they would hold t- three in-person track workouts a week at Brown stadium. So it would be Monday morning, oh, cool. Wednesday morning and Wednesday afternoon or something like that. So I would go to the morning ones, which were always really fun. And, you know, I really enjoyed that. I kind of fit my skill set as well as kind of more of a, um, I guess from a athlete type perspective, I was more on like the explosive side than the aerobic side, much more like, you know, fast twitch athlete than slow twitch athlete. So I really enjoyed the track workouts and I was able to punch above my weight 
in those sessions. So like people who would like roast me in a marathon and this isn't hypothetical. This is, this really happened. People who would absolutely, you'll beat me by 30 minutes in a marathon. We would do the same track workouts. So like, that was kind of fun and exciting. They were like, Oh, can I break three Oh five? And I'm like, I'm just trying to break three thirty, but I can run this track workout with you, but I won't try to keep up with you on a long run. And that was fun and exciting. And that's kind of where it kind of stayed for a while, Whitney. And, you know, in my mid thirties, again, I was just kind of in and out. I was in and out. I was injured or into it sometimes and not in others and stuff like that. But basically once I started, basically once I started with the podcast, that's when I really was like, all right, well, if I'm going to do a podcast on this, I really should be more consistent. And not that I have been the last four and a half years, but that's kind of what took me to the next level in terms of not just wanting to be, but also having that kind of like a little bit of like tacit peer pressure of like, I'm going to be talking about this all the time. I really should be a little bit more dedicated. Okay. So that I would think then that you would have been all in to then start the podcast. So how did you get the idea for the podcast? And then why did you like, was kind of a fringe benefit of it when you started that, hey, this is going to make me be more consistent in my running? That was definitely not in the decision matrix. No way. That's just kind of how it worked out. There were moments where I dreaded it. I was like, oh, stupid podcast. I just have to go for a run today. <laughs> that, that's, not, that's not how I feel most of the time, very, very rarely. But well, I don't know. See, we can, you can enjoy something and not necessarily be a part of it. Like I enjoy college football. I love college football. I've never played college football and I don't currently coach on a college football team, but I really enjoy it. Right. So I don't think those two things are necessarily connected all the time. For me, it was more of, all right, when I was at Providence College, so I worked after I left coaching, met my wife. Coaching is like, especially coaching a winter sport. It stinks for like, Basically, all my mentors in coaching were like, they all got divorced. Oh, yes. Yeah. And they basically said, you can either be a good coach or you can be a good husband and father. You're not going to be good at both. So you just have to go into it with your eyes wide open. So I made my choice. I left coaching, started working in the philanthropic side of university life and got into fundraising. So I was at Providence College at the time uh, as a major gift officer. And I kept haranguing the head of marketing whose office was offices were right next to our offices. And I just kept saying, Joe, like you guys are doing all the interviews for the blog, for the alumni magazine, for the website, all this stuff. You guys are doing all these interviews. Just record them and put them out as a podcast. Like, who cares? There are no college podcasts. You can be at the forefront of it, and you really don't have to do many edit, much editing, and you're already doing the interviews. Just put them out. So, And he was a big audio fan, so he, he knew all about this stuff. So I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and finally he was like, hey, good news. We got we bought the, uh, the podcasting you know, technology. He, said it more eloquently than I'm saying it now, but basically they bought all the stuff needed to put out a podcast. It's not like now where all you need is an iPhone and you can put out a podcast. It was the technological hurdles were different back then. This was five and a half years ago. And um, I was like, that's great news. So he's like, all right, well, there's one catch though. You have to host it. First of all, I don't work for you. Second of all, I have no experience. Third of all, my boss is definitely not going to like this because I'm already having a hard time, hard time enough at my job. Besides, never mind taking on another responsibility. But anyway, any coming fruition, we had like one of the first college podcasts. It was a weekly interview podcast, like 30 to 40 minutes. So did that for six months. And then Anchor, which some people may know, is like the easiest way to start a podcast in the world. It's super, super easy. They had basically, they were the first ones to do it, to basically eliminate hurdles in the podcasting space. So all of a sudden you didn't need all the gear. All you needed was an iPhone. So I was on their email list at the time because 
don't know, Gary Vaynerchuk had mentioned the app at some point, whatever. It, at the time, it was audio Twitter, which is the worst idea. It's basically like listening to like the voicemail messages on your phone. It's like, it sucks. So they pivoted, rightfully. And because I was on their email list, because I had their app, I found out that day that they pivoted to basically podcast in a box. All you need was an iPhone. And they disseminated to all like, you know, Spotify and, you know, iTunes and all the, the different podcasting mediums out there. And it's like, oh, this is great. You know, what? all of a sudden there's no technological hurdle. Let's put out a podcast. So I was already doing one. So it wasn't that foreign to me. I was already listening to a bunch. I was listening to Lindsay Hine. I was listening to Allie. I was listening to Carrie. Mario hadn't started his yet. We started ours around basically around the same time. And so I was like, I'm going to start a show, but everyone's already interviewing. And then there was a bunch of trail running podcasts as well. It's huge trail running podcasts, you know, trail runner nation and some of the others I had really carved up a nice niche in that, in that space. So I'm like, all right, a lot of pros are already getting interviewed. We don't need another pro, another person interviewing these pro runners. That was my thinking at the time. I'll just interview am- amateur runners who have interesting stories. I love those kind of stories. And I was like, and if no one listens, it's fine because is I'll be having an interesting conversation with someone that I'd want to have a conversation with anyway. So I don't care if anyone listens and I'll just go from there. And it was just a hobby. There was, there was honestly nothing beyond it than just like, Hey, this would be interesting, interesting hobby. I didn't put like a time on it. I didn't put goals around it. Basically, if anything, it was like, I don't want to spend too much time doing this. Like, like uh, limit my time doing this. I'm first podcast I recorded was with Shawana white. Who's awesome. She was the first podcast recorded. It was, I was traveling in Long Island at the time for fundraising and I recorded it like in the third row of the Target off of the Long Island Expressway in Riverhead, New York. It was like the most, it was the worst place to record a podcast. I didn't care. It was like, it was such a, just a hobby. No one cared. I didn't care. And, you know, it was like Shawana had never been interviewed by anybody because no one was interviewing amateur runners. So it was like, we're all kind of like, exploring it together in a way so then so that was uh, three years ago it was I, shoot now it's like i think it was like four years ago so how did you become so big i mean now you are one of the most well-known running podcasts i mean it's i love like i i've said this to you before i think you do such a great job asking questions and it really is such like a natural conversation you do a great job of eliminating awkward moments which is key in a podcast I feel like but so if you were trying to put like kind of minimal effort into this how did it I mean gain so much traction and do so well well first of all it didn't happen right away so I almost didn't continue the podcast so I started on July 4th I guess 2017 so I was doing one episode a week or two and nobody was listening okay nobody like I didn't, I really wasn't active on social media. So like, how would anyone know? You know? So, you know, there were like tens of people listening. So you know, that was it. It's like the, the problem is college podcast was getting like 150 downloads per episode. And I was like, all right, I'm never going to reach that because they have 50,000 alumni and they have 150 downloads per episode. So I have, I'm just the guy recording it from the Long Island Expressway. So how many people are going <laughs> to listen to my show? Like if I get 50, that would be amazing. 50 per episode, I thought would be an absolutely incredible number. So anyway, I would I didn't even reach that. I was going to like eight. So I, I remember going down to Dallas to see my, my brother-in-law for Thanksgiving, right? Our whole family went down and he's like, yo, I listened to your show and it's pretty good. I'm like, wait, what? Like you're not a runner. Yeah, you don't, you, you never were a runner. You don't follow running. He was basically just listening because I'm his brother in law and he gave it a shot. And he's like, I'm not kidding. It's good. 
And I was like, at that point, I had already decided like that weekend that I was done. I was like, what am I even doing this for? You know what I mean? But I was like, hey, hold on. If Jimmy thinks it's good and he has no vested interest in even telling me this because I didn't even know he listened. It wasn't like I was following up with him. He was bringing up for the first time. I'm like, all right, well, maybe I should give it a try. So two months later, I recorded a few more shows and there were some really good guests. That's it. The quality of the guests was always great. Yeah. The quality of the interviewer was not always great. The quality <laughs> of the marketing was horrendous. So finally. <laughs> and there's the secret to success right there. <laughs> right? Yes. Everybody else was good. I was the kid in the group project who wasn't pulling his weight, basically. <laughs> so right around Christmas time, around New Year's, I'm like, all right, social media marketing is something that's so important. I'm not great at it, but I've never tried to be good at it, but I, I should get good at this. This will help me in my day job, being good at social media marketing. So I don't want to like try out a bunch of stuff during my day job because if I do something wrong, there's going to be consequences. It's like, I'll just do it on the podcast. Like no one cares. I'll just use that as like a lab space to try out social media marketing stuff for my actual job that maybe I can learn something from this and then apply it to that. So anyway, that's what I did. So I, I started really focusing on the marketing side, kind of like guerrilla marketing, kind of one-to-one, really reaching out to people, not like marketing with a capital M. And I also switched the show, I think in late January to twice a week. It turned to like usually twice a week. It wasn't diehard, but it moved more often than not, it was twice a week. So I'd made a couple of those changes and um, and it really took off. You know, so I was like making sure that like I was, I was like I was making trying to make it easy for the people who run the show to to share it. I was in their comments. I was in my own comments. I was reaching out to people all the time. I was spending a ton of time on social media. I was getting really bad at my day job because so I was spending so much time doing this, and and it worked. So the first six months of the podcast, there were eight thousand downloads in total, in total, eight thousand. Which, if you've never been in part of a podcast thing, is it's basically it's it's closer to zero basically than any other number if you're at that level. So again, no judgment. If you're trying a podcast, stick with it. But that's where I was. So first six months, eight thousand. The following twelve months, we had nine hundred thirty thousand. So we had almost a million in the following twelve months that calendar year. So two thousand calendar year two thousand eighteen. So that was um. That was something else, man. And once that happened, it became, in my own head, a matter of not instead of if I could ever make this full time, it was more like when, when can this happen? Because it it hit a hit a trajectory at that point where I was like, okay, this is now a legit thing. And um, you know, I liked my coworkers, but I can't say I loved fundraising. And all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, like this could be a full time job for me. Like that's a whole different thing. That's amazing. That's a dream. Oh, yeah, it's great. I dropped my kids off today. Then I went for a 10-mile run. I came back, took a shower, and I started recording with you. Like, that's been my day so far. Like, it's the best. Yeah, you you seriously are living the dream. That's kind of, that's my trajectory as well. I actually worked at a university, too. That was my last job out of the house. I was in PR for the University of Tennessee and now make my living related to running as well. So it's amazing to be able to do that. So yeah, I actually remember I, you were on somebody's podcast. I want to say it was with Andy and Zach, A to Z running. Yeah. And listening to your story. And I was like, oh, that's, he's so inspiring. That's what I want. <laughs> that's what I want to do. Okay. So you start this podcast, you become more consistent with your running. What do you think has been kind of like your hurdles in the past? Why did you have so many like starts and stops and how did it take you so long and what needed to happen in order for you to hit your stride, so to speak? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons. You know, it, it, there's a lot of context. There's not context, but there's a lot. There's a lot of things going on. You know, and I think part of it is, you know, you have like, first of all, there's, there's stuff you can control, and there's stuff you can't control, right? So, like, you know, again, and there's even within that, there's gray areas, right? I could say like, I'm never playing outside with my kids, right? I can, can control that. I'm like, you know, I can. That also would be like saying like, hey, I can't wait to get divorced. So, <laughs> you know, like I like you know, sprain my ankle playing soccer with my son, right? I've like thrown out my back, like opening my daughter's window, like over the top of like a, a bookshelf that I shouldn't have approached that way, right? So like there's things where like you get hurt doing something and you're like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe I'm not going to run for two months because of this silly little thing, right? Right. Then there's other things like, hey, I didn't do take prehab seriously, right? Right. I'm not, like not doing my run activation seriously. Right. And all of a sudden, like you build up the mileage, you're doing great, you're doing great until you're not. All of a sudden you get nebrositis because you didn't do the five minutes before run, the stuff that like, you know, so easy to do. It's like, I'm going to do like two sets of step ups, maybe a set of air squats and some hip mobility. And like, that takes no time. And like, here I am not doing it. And then here I am getting injured for, and then I'm I'm out for a while. So you have these injuries that will pop up occasionally in all of our lives, some that we can control, some that we can't. And, you know, usually we can control these things, you know, and that, especially with these running injuries, I feel like, and I don't know, it'd be interesting your perspective on this, who's had a running injury that I've never had about how much of this we can proactively stop from happening versus other times we're like, Hey, that's just how it goes sometimes. And maybe we just made a series of small mistakes and, you know, a series, just a couple. And all of a sudden it leads you down a road that you didn't expect to go down. But for me, there was the injury piece of like, okay, this hurt me. And then other times where like, I just wasn't, I feel like I was always going couch to race. Like there was no building upon fitness, right? So like I ran CIM in December, which was basically a couch to marathon after having knee bursitis. And the training for that was fine. I think I made the most of the training time that I had. And I was very proud of that. Uh, again, couch to marathon is not advisable. So did the race go great? No, it didn't. But I was happy with the effort I put into the training that I had and happy with the effort I put into the race. Now I'm preparing for the Eugene marathon. It's a totally different experience because I'm fit. So building upon myself, building upon previous fitness is great. Like, am I going to run a 5k PR tomorrow if I, if I race? No, like I'm not like, I'm not like the fittest I've ever been or anything like that. But like from a strength perspective, I feel like, like I ran 10 miles this morning with surges, like a one minute surge every five minutes. And I finished, I was like, I could have done this for another five miles. Like I felt really strong. Like, was I flying during the one minute surges? No, but the strength that I had accrued was great. And I think that the lack of consistency for a variety of reasons, whether it was motivation, commitment, injury, and most of all, self-belief. And I think this was the thing that I wasn't getting was that I had put a kind of like a governor on top of what I thought I was capable of, not in terms of like, what can Matt Chittam do as a runner if everything comes together? More like, for some reason in my head, I had pinned it down as like, if you run 40 miles a week, that's an awesome week. That's an awesome, awesome week. And I kind of like had put like a unknowingly had kind of put a ceiling in there in my head. And I'm realizing that now after the fact, I didn't realize this at the time. And I don't even know how it got there, frankly, but somehow it hit there. So basically anytime I hit 40 miles a week, I was kind of like, all right, I'm good. That's it. Right. Like that's interesting. That's the level. Again, it's completely arbitrary and I can't sit here and make sense of it to you because it doesn't make any sense, but that somehow that had like, you know, needled into my brain. So like, again, so I think there were times where I could have easily gone up to 50 or 60 miles a week. I did 60 miles, you know, two weeks ago and, and handled it just fine, but I never did. And ultimately 
the all these little things kind of kind of marinate together for this like you know this underwhelming runner stew or uh, that, that I told you that I was going to serve you up today and you know that's kind of how it worked out and I'm trying I'm in the process I'm saying I'm trying I'm in the process of eliminating all the nonsense right things happen right like two nights ago my dog was up all night but guess who else was up all night <laughs> right like my run the next morning was not good right sometimes things just happen but I think this falls into like what can you control and oftentimes you can control more than you think you can especially if you're really taking a deep dive into what is happening in your life and what you're actually thinking. Yeah, I have a saying that I try to gravitate towards, which is control the controllables. Because when you try to control the things that you can't, you're just going to drive yourself insane. And it's just the end result's not going to be good. Yeah, but I think part of that too, Whitney, is that like, you also have to understand where you might be not identifying things correctly. Like if you had told me before, like, hey, control the controllables, I would I could have like shot back like, hey, well, I'm running 40 miles a week, right? Thinking that that like was proof of something in terms of like, look how much I'm crushing it type, type vibe. And it's like, well, that's not bad. That's fine. That's really good. Congratulations. But like, you could have been running more at that time. Again, sometimes life impinges on our schedules and you can't run more than 40 miles a week. But there were plenty of times where I could have. I just didn't thinking that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. I wasn't. In terms of like, I wasn't really maximizing my running situation. So if I was, if the goal was to do that and it was the goal, well, then I wasn't controlling the controllables. I was under this, you know, I was you know, in this cocoon of false belief that I needed to break free from. I see. Yeah. I feel like you and I are kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum with that because my like controllables or uncontrollables were life. And so I felt like I could do everything running wise, but at the time when I was training hard, it was like I was never sleeping through the night because I was always up with my kids or, you know, life was just way too busy and I was too tired. And so I was trying to to grasp hold of that while not having my running schedule bent with what was on my plate. So I was that was my problem. You know, I hear it. Yeah. At that time, I was like the I was the early morning runner. So this was when my daughter was young. You know, so this was so she was born in 2012. So she was in the younger side. So I was a morning runner. So I was one of those like get up at 4:30, out the door by five, back home by six types. But at the same time, like I could have run at night, could run longer. I did have lunch breaks, right? I could have done more on the weekends, things like that. Like I could have fought for it more. And I, I basically that's another thing. I didn't really fight for it. It was like any time that there was like something that I could easily rationalize impinging on my running schedule. I was okay. Well, that's the way it goes, right? That's life. Instead of being like, wait, hold on, hold on. Is this really a, you know, schedule changing occurrence or moment? Or am I just letting it become that? And again, I'm not speaking for anyone else here but me. I just look, I know looking back on it that that was something that I let happen instead of really trying to embrace the things that I could control instead of. Instead of pretending like I was controlling the things I could control. And I think that was a problem. That's something that I have, like a conversation I have with a lot of my athletes of just looking at hard at the schedule and figuring out when you can fit in a run. Because often, yes, most people go early in the morning because that's the most like guaranteed time. But if you've been up all night with a kid or up all night with a sick dog and it's just not going to serve you you well to skimp on your sleep and go then okay can you or if you're stuck home with the kids or whatever 
where can you ask for help? Can you do it at lunch? Can you do a sheet pan meal and have that cook while you go for a run and you're partners with the kids? You know, yeah, I think breaking outside of that box and looking at like just not getting stuck in in that thought pattern that you can only do it at a certain time or you can only run a certain mileage. And I think when you run with other people or, you know, you talk to runners every day probably and learning what what works for them and their schedule and that kind of helps you think outside the box to hey I don't have to just run in the mornings or hey I only you know I can run more than 40 miles a week I think that just exposing yourself to other people helps too I said that in a weird way <laughs> well, the other thing too Whitney is that like and sometimes you can't right sometimes you're maxed out and I was like I can get in six or seven hours a week that's the way it goes okay fine. Well, let's make sure that we hit that every week. Right. And that was another thing is that like, even if you said, Hey Matt, you can only run 40 miles a week. And I was like, Hey, makes sense to me, man. I wasn't like I was hitting that for every week. Right. I was allowing those down weeks to occur when they didn't have to occur. I was letting little inconveniences become big inconveniences. And I was actively, you know, putting my arms around easy excuses. Instead of not doing that and saying, okay, all right, no, I can only do 40 miles a week, but you know what? Shoot, man, 11 out of the 12 months this year, I ran over 150 miles, right? And if I was able to do that, then I, hey, that's awesome, right? And you can tailor a workout plan to make that into something that's really, really successful and really can work well for you. Instead of being like, all right, I can only hit 40, but I only hit 150 miles a month, you know, five times this year because of a myriad of reasons, some of which I could control and some of which I couldn't. And maybe I didn't approach it the way I really, really could have. And I know that's, that can be hard to hear, especially when you're someone who's in the, in the throes of it. So and I don't want to make it sound like I'm not being sensitive to that because, and I coach athletes too. And, and there are times where that, that stuff goes down. I'm just speaking, speaking about myself. I know that I, looking back on it, I have so many regrets. Again, I'm, an active parent. I purposely, I'm, you know, I, I take my kids to school. I cook all, I cook dinner. I do the grocery shopping. I take my kids up from school. I do all that stuff. Am I going to say I do more than my wife? No. Cause first of all, that'd be incorrect. Second of all, I want to stay married. So I would never say that, but you know, I look back on periods of my life and I know I didn't get the most out of my circumstances. Even if my circumstances didn't change, I did not make, I did not get the most out of them from a running perspective. And I have regrets surrounding it. And I'm trying to remedy that situation now. Hey, we'll think of Kiara D'Amato. It's not time lost. You you know? So, okay. So it seems like, as you said, you had a ceiling on your training. So you just kind of set the bar too low for yourself. And you don't know why, but what made the shift? A couple things. I just knew that I needed to improve my aerobic capacity. I need to get stronger. I need to improve my aerobic capacity. You know, leading into... CIM, like it was so obvious, right? Like I, the last, yeah, every long run I did at mile 12, like it became a struggle and, you know, I finished my long runs and all of that, but like, I was well aware that like, man, this is kind of where I am right now. I need to get stronger. And the only way this is going to happen is if I'm, is if I'm running longer and putting more miles in, and it's not simply in the long run. Like I need to do more of this and not just more meaning more per week, but also many more weeks of this, right? So there's two ways of building it out. And if you can do both, hey, even better, right? So that was the idea. And I needed to to really focus on that. That's always where my, my training had gone haywire. Like I'd focus much more on 5Ks. And in doing so, it was more like just tying into my own strengths as an athlete. Like I would prepare for 5Ks. And this is when I wasn't being coached. By basically just focusing on workouts, right? So focusing on short, 
peppy track workouts. I enjoyed doing them. And that was, you know, part part and parcel why I chose them for 5Ks, right? It's because I chose 5Ks because I like 5Ks. And I chose the workouts because I like the workouts. And I knew I could get ready for them without putting in a ton of miles every week. It would be better if I had put in more miles. But I knew that I could go to these races and still do relatively well without crushing miles. So that's how I had handled most of my 30s from a running perspective. You know, I did run a marathon in my late 20s, but I didn't run any marathons in my 30s. Ran one this last year. I was 40. So I knew that I was missing key components in my training for an extended period of time that would lend itself to being good in the marathon. And that's what I wanted to do. So it was like, okay, I know what I know the choices I've made and I know what I need to do to become better at that distance. So let's do it. So the idea was, all right, I'm going to start putting in more miles all the time, weekdays, weekends, whatever we can make it work. And for me, Thursday long run works, right? I'm much busier on the weekends than I am on the weekdays. On the weekdays, I control my schedule from 9 to 2.30. So I can make that work. On the weekends, I have much less control over my schedule. So I run my long runs on Thursdays. So I was able to, to make that work. And, you know, at this point, I'm trying to make it so my easy runs are 8 to 10 miles. And that's just a normal easy run for me, which is way different than the past. I mean, way, way different. And make it so like my long runs are always over two hours. And if I can do that for an extended period of time, and I'm kind of on my way to do that now, I, uh, I'm i really interested to see what the results will be, not just in the next one to two marathon cycles, but, you know, two or three years down the line. So did turning 40 coincide with this focus on increasing your aerobic capacity? Not really. You know, I think it, I, you know, I did the whole Mastering 40 series on the podcast, which was fun. And it was like a way of like, you know, engaging with people and doing something fun and exciting. But I think it was more like I had such bad marathon experiences before that I kind of had said, like, I don't want to do it anymore. And then as time continued to press on, I was like, am I really going to hold on to these like these these like weak ass reasons for not doing the marathon? Yeah, some people <laughs> want to do a marathon. Don't do a marathon. It's fine. Right. There's so much gravity around it. And it's just not doesn't work for everybody. There's, there's the title for the uh, podcast, Overcoming Weak-Ass Reasons Not to Run. There we go. Right there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so true. But I, um, you know, it's like I wanted to run a marathon again. I wanted to become, I wanted to get into it. And I had such a bitter taste in my mouth from the, the two marathons I did in my late 20s. And I was like, you know what? Like, I just can't put this off any longer. So it was more around that. I was like, all right, well, I'm going to do the marathon. And I want to have a good experience doing the marathon. Well, I know what I need to do. I need to get stronger as a runner in terms of being able to handle the miles physically and improving my aerobic capacity and getting as many slow twitch muscle fibers as I can. So whether, you know, converting the ones that can kind of switch between fast twitch and slow twitch, making as many of those as I can over into slow twitch and all of this kind of happens concurrently. So, you know, you know, the, this wasn't like wasn't like I had to do all these separate different endeavors to, to hit all these points, but that was the idea. It was really all centered on, I want to get back. I want to start focusing on marathons and what's the best way to do that. And, you know, I am a running coach, but it didn't take a running coach to figure it out. Like it it was a pretty (laughs) obvious way to get there. And it was the, basically the exact opposite of what I had been doing. So what made you pick Eugene? That's exciting. It's going to be really pretty. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. 
Tracktown USA, we're finishing at Hayward Field, which is really exciting. It's just There's a lot of history in that area, as you and all your listeners know. So that was a big part of it. And we're partnering together, which is also really fun. So they, they did, they're sponsoring the show, which is really exciting. We're going out, going out there to do a bunch of live shows as well. I'm doing some stuff on the podcast, kind of like talking about my training as I go. Um, that was one thing that always surprised me with the show is that people wanted to hear about my training. <laughs> <laughs> don't understand, but okay, I'll, I'll oblige. So, and that's something that I'm really excited about is my training has shifted recently. People are really interested in how that's working, how that's going, exactly what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and, you know, and what I'm doing to try to stay healthy during it. So, you know, so January, I had, it was the first time I ever ran back to back 50 mile weeks. And then after I did that, the third week, I did 60. So I, you know, it was easily like, a whole new level of training for me. Then last week was a down week, various reasons, but this week will be in the mid fifties for sure. So it is kind of exciting and to apply new lessons and stuff that I know as a coach, but this is the other thing is that I coach so many people doing marathons and I know I do a good job of it because they have good experiences and they enjoy the training and they have, they have races that they're proud of and they have training that they're proud of. So I really do enjoy that, but I did feel like there was the longer I went not running marathons, I felt like I was worried that I was going to lose the experience. So not only did I want to run them for myself, and I certainly did, the added benefit was that so many of my athletes want to run marathons. So like, I just thought it behooved me to be involved in that as well, just because you don't know what you don't know, just in terms of the, not the X's and O's of it, but more of like, just making sure that I was, had a, that just making sure that I had a grasp on the, the mental and emotional strain that can come with the training and the racing at that distance. So are you having to overcome any mental hurdles now that you've, it seems like you have great momentum with your training. Now you have an all time mileage high. Do you still kind of run into those barriers that haunted you in the past or have new ones popped up? Do you have fear from like, you know, you've had you've dealt with your knee bursitis. And I I know, I think I read in a past Instagram post that you kind of slacked on your prehab and were, were reminded of the importance of that. Yes. Luckily I caught that right away. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know what? I'm a really competitive person and I try to not have that overwhelm the podcast and stuff like that. Yeah. Cause you know, the show is not about me, but I can get unbelievably competitive. So that can be, you know, it's like fire. It can be a positive thing or it could be a really bad thing, depending on how you use it. So it's, I'm trying to make sure I use it as a positive thing. Whereas, you know, there are times where I'm like, how come I'm not faster? How come I'm not this? How come I'm not that? Blah, 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 blah. Right. Like the goalposts are always getting moved and, but the competitiveness remains and it's easy if I let myself to go down these rabbit holes of like, you know, why aren't I doing X, Y, Z and, you know, letting my mind run wild. And all of a sudden having that put kind of like a, you know, just a negative taste in my mouth regarding how things are going. So I think that's always the struggle for me is doing that and just making sure that, you know, I'm not a professional runner in that I don't get money from running, right? My life from a profession standpoint is in the running community. So I need to make sure that I'm doing the other things in my life that, you know, are are income drivers and revenue drivers and things like that. And not assuming, you know, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to win Eugene and get the prize purse. Right. So I'm making sure that I'm not doing all of this and setting myself up for failure in other areas. So that's, you know, so it's like, all right, I may want to take a nap after my long run on Thursdays, but like, 
I'm recording a podcast after that long run. So you got to make sure you're on top of your game. So, you know, doing all the things that are necessary in that regard, but mostly it's trying to rein in my competitiveness and make sure that it doesn't put me in a negative mindset because ultimately you're not going to become what you think. You're going to become what you are. And if you try to embody the positive qualities that are you know, things that you, you know, you, you look back on your life and say, I want to be this kind of person. And if you are that kind of person and you can live that consistently, then hopefully then I think things will work out in a positive way. With that said, when I kind of dwell in the negativity or the competitiveness that can, or the, you know, dwell on the competitiveness and some of the negativity that can stem from it, then it puts me and it makes me the kind of person that I don't want to be. And that has an impact on all the other areas in my life. So, and it's one thing, it's easy to rein that in when I'm not taking running seriously. Because I can say, I'm not taking running seriously. What do I have to be competitive about? As you amp up the experience, it's easier to say, as I ramp up the experience, it's easier for the competitiveness beast inside of me to try to grab the steering wheel of the car while I'm trying to navigate maybe in a different way. So again, I think that that competitiveness is important and can be used in a lot of positive ways, but I need to make sure that it uh, it doesn't put me in a, in a bad spot too. So how do you use it for good and not for evil? Do you shield yourself from looking at other people's Strava workouts or like how do you kind of protect yourself from the, from the negative side of it? No, I don't do that because you have to, have to learn how to like, you have to learn how to observe without making it about you, you know? So it's a great point. You know, if I go look at my friends, so look at Allie Feller, like Allie Feller goes and runs eight and a half miles and crushes her elevation gain because she lives in the hills and mountains of New Hampshire. You know, it's easy for me to be like, wow, we ran the same distance today and the same speed. And she did like 400 more feet of elevation gain than I did, you know, like what the hell, Matt, you know, type stuff, right? Like you know, not going there. And, and usually I don't go there. So I'm fine with that. It's more of, it works out well for me when I say, okay, I know I'm capable from a long-term perspective of doing X, Y, Z as an athlete, right? So whether that's qualifying for the Boston Marathon or hitting other goals, right? Things that aren't like outrageous goals, right? They are could be challenging and could take years to accomplish, but they're not on their face irrational. So it's like, all right, if I'm going to do that, then, you know, you're going to fight through this workout. Like you're, this is part of it. Right. And, you know, if you really think that you're capable of doing that, well then, Hey, every day matters to get there. So you, you want to break three ten this year at a marathon. All right. Well then this is part of it. And we're going to make this happen. And then trying to use my competitiveness in that sense and try to use it more in the moment to drive myself as opposed to using it after the fact to judge myself. That is beautiful. That's great. Like, seriously, I think that will help many people, that mindset, me included. I would love to know what you love about the sport of running. Why are you so passionate about it? It's the same reason I love all the sports. It's not running specific. It's people who are working hard to get better at something in the face of whatever challenges that they have, whether those are physical challenges, whether they are you know, mental and emotional challenges, whether it's just like situational challenges, right? Like people who have, you know, they're waking up at four o'clock in the morning to get runs in, or, you know, they're doing doubles because not because they're an elite athlete, but because they can't run for more than 40 minutes. They have more than 45 minutes on the schedules. They do two, three mile runs a day or these wild things or people who 
I just love feature stories. So I love the fact that people can in any sport and especially in running and again, in any other endeavor, but when you have a solo endeavor, I think it is amplified when you see people overcome something or various things in their life to reach a level that was not merely a goal, which is inspiring, but maybe a completely different plane or level that they expected to get to. I think that those are the, that's the gold right there. And that's why the Kira Nuano story, which we started this podcast with, is such a beacon for so many people. Because it wasn't like it ended at the Marathon Project last year, where she goes and she kicks butt. She runs incredibly well, right? She gets a Nike deal, right? That could have been the happily ever after. That could have been it. It wasn't. It was I'm breaking records now. It's like this totally different level. And it's why people are so excited to see what Sarah Vaughn does, right? Sarah Vaughn, track star for the U.S. for a long time, was in the upper echelon of track athletes, goes into CIM, breaks the CIM course record. Again, that could, that in and of itself, boom, if it ended there, absolutely remarkable. But I think, especially we're kind of primed to be after seeing what Kira did, we're all kind of sitting there like, oh my God, what could happen next? Could she like go win Boston? Could she go win New York? Could she do X, Y, Z, right? Like, you know, it could be a very, it could be a really unique experience to see what happens next. So I think those are the things and I'm bringing those athletes up because they're more household names, but there are amateur runners who do similar things that are just awesome to, to witness. And I think, you know, we're recording this during the winter Olympics and this is why it makes the Olympics fun. It's like nobody watches bobsled, like, the other 47 months out of the four year cycle, right? Like it's just this one month people start caring about bobsled or like luge or like figure skating. Again, I, mean, I know there's like pockets of people who care about these things, but the vast majority of Americans don't listen, don't watch these events. The other 47 months of the four year cycle. But not only do we care about them for the, that one month, we passionately care. We all become like experts in these events and we have very, very strong feelings about the pros, pros and cons and how people are robbed and all of this stuff. And, and it's in part of it is because we get drawn into the stories behind the athletes, not the sports themselves. And I think that ultimately is what makes all of this so fascinating. That was beautiful. And I totally agree. And I just have to note that, you know, Sarah and Kara are both mother runners, you know, who work and they take care of kids. And so that's like another reason why I think it's inspiring to so many people is because it's not like they are pro athletes who are taking four hour naps during the day and having their calves massaged all the time, you know, like they have so much on their plate. And I want to stress that, but Winnie, you're right. And I want to make a point is that it's easy sometimes for us to, to, and understandably so, to highlight, like, look at what these people can do. But also, don't lose sight of the fact that Sarah Vaughn and Kira D'Amato are unbelievably talented people. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay? So I don't want anyone to look at them and be like, oh, my God, look what they did. How come I can't do stuff like that? Like, hold on. They are beating people who are doing the four-hour nap thing who are also really talented. So like they're beating amazing athletes. True. They are genetically blessed for sure. They're beating amazing athletes who are dedicated every second of their life to being fast. And these people are still beating them with all of their other obligations. I say that not to diminish them, but to say, hey, oftentimes we focus on the, the fact that they're able to do it all. Let's also not lose sight of the fact that these are unbelievably talented athletes. They are just as talented in their sport as Simone Biles and LeBron James and Mike Trout and all the other amazing athletes who are professional athletes. So if you're looking at this, I don't want any 
amateur run, look at them. Anybody to make it to feel bad about themselves. Right. To be like, yeah. oh, well, if she can do it, how come I can't? Right. Like, we're not saying you can't, but let's also not diminish what these people are doing because what they're doing is no less genetically freakish than like what you're seeing. Like, you know, again, Simone Biles doing, uh, doing something unbelievably amazing, right. Or a figure skater doing a triple axle. Like she's not just someone who works hard. She's also incredibly gifted. And then that's, and it, we, I don't want people to lose sight of that. Right. Oh yes. It is not an equal playing field. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. And then I think they would also chime in and say that they have a ton of help. It takes a village. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I have enjoyed thoroughly talking with you. How can people connect with you and obviously listen to your podcast? So the Rambling Runner podcast is anytime, anywhere you, anywhere you listen to podcasts, it's kind of like saying, like, where can I get your book? I don't know, wherever you get books, man, you go on Amazon or whatever. So <laughs> it's wherever you get podcasts, it's there on social media, predominantly on, or primarily on Instagram. So rambling underscore runner. I am on Twitter as well. Less running talk on Twitter than I do have on Instagram. More basketball talk on Twitter oh. <laughs> than I have on Instagram. And uh, yeah, so I guess Instagram is really the place to find me. The podcast is hopefully anywhere you listen to podcasts. And uh, yeah, I really enjoy it. And if you like the show, please let me know. Awesome. Thanks so much, Matt. My pleasure, Winnie. Thank you, Matt. And thank you all for listening to The Passionate Runner. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at runnerclick.com slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you are enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash TPR. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes. See you next time.